You know, 2 Peter is Peter's final message to the church. He is soon to die a martyr's death, execution at the hands of Nero. The tradition is true, he will be crucified. But he determined not to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord was crucified. And so, by his instruction, he was crucified upside down. This is the message that he wants the church to be sure they know. And so he obviously has our attention because if this is his final word, then it's a word that we ought to heed. And so I want you to dial with me into this passage because it is rich in truth. He is encouraging us in this letter, small epistle, to grow steadfastly in our faith, to continue our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ until the end of life or until the Lord returns. Now, if your prayer is like my prayer along with Kay, come Lord Jesus, come. We would love to be able to be brought before the presence of the Lord in the rapture of the church before we actually experience dying in this body. But if so, I pray the Lord will find us faithful either way. This is what Peter is calling us to do, to grow steadfastly in our faith and be warned there are going to be people who will try to thwart that, try to deter you from that, try to move you off God's path. And so we're going to find in this letter there's going to be warnings of false teachers who are going to try to shift your thoughts and your heart and your way against the way of Jesus Christ. And those warnings are going to be pretty absolute. He says there are going to be opportunities for us to stumble and fall. And so he's saying, be guarded. Take heed to that stumbling because I'm adjuring you to steadfastly grow in your faith. So let's read the letter together. Beginning just in chapter 1, the first couple of verses today. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, Peter is going to spend the first part of this letter affirming God's grace and what it means to be saved by his grace and how we, by his grace, grow in our spirituality, in life, and in godliness. He's going to say the denominator of that salvation and growth is grace in Christ, the grace that Christ extends to us. And God graciously has made us a partaker of his divine nature. That's not something we can earn. We can't achieve that. It's by grace that God brings to us his divine nature. He imputes his righteousness. He indwells us by his Holy Spirit. It's a nature that you and I might want to strive for, but we would fall miserably in doing so. And so we die to self. And we're made new in Jesus Christ. That's what that baptism was illustrating for us today. A death to self and a resurrection in Jesus Christ. Now, we would remain in our sin and the corruption that is left in us if it were not that God moved upon us. 
left unabated, we would remain in that state. But yet God loves us enough that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be our rescuer. And it's in that great love that God has for us that he redeems us from corruption and to righteousness. It's just not that he's reconciled you, but he has forgiven your sin and he has charged you, credited to you, righteousness. He has infused that or imputed that into you. So I want you to know that salvation is not just transactional. It's not something that's happened. You've been paid for and now you are saved. But it is also a continuous movement of God's grace in our lives that not only are we saved, but we are continuing in that salvation. We are continuing in that transformation. So Peter not only wants us to know this truth, this letter is all about you and me flourishing in that truth. He wants you to not just know it, he wants you to love it, which is partly what we were just doing, singing the great expressions of God's goodness to us, reflecting on how he has brought us out of sin and death and brought us into righteousness and life. And when you're singing those kind of things, it just, it just flows from your heart if you're understanding the truth in that. Now, I've got a little bit of an advantage on you just because I've been spending the last five days pouring into this section of scripture, just letting it pour into me. So I'm sort of primed with its truths before I even enter in this room. But for those of us now together who are going to acknowledge this truth and receive it and walk in it, it ought to change the way we live from this point forward. It ought to change the way we sing. Uh, Kevin alluded to it earlier that you and I will sing forever and ever in heaven. And that, that sort of uh, makes some of you uneasy. You don't really like singing and you're not very good at singing. Some of you are not very good at singing. Okay, let's just move toward that truth and just say, yeah, that's me. But yet God has given you a new song. It's not about you singing so that other people can hear. The new song is this joy that is registered in you. It's part of God's presence in you. It's part of knowing his truth and how that transforms you and makes you so that you have joy that has to be expressed. That's the song. It's not that you're going to be singing like with a choir book in heaven with all the angels surrounding you. Maybe that'll happen, but I don't expect that's what heaven is like for here and on and on and on I think it is living with the joyous song that God has deposited in us by his spirit through his son just the joy anybody wake up not in a bad mood you wake up joyful you wake up with a whistle you wake up with a hum you just like have a merry tune as you're going to the coffee pot uh, that's, a, that's part of the joy that God has given you. And maybe some of you about 11 or 12, that comes around, but whatever. <laughs> it's the joy of Christ. It's the, the song that he's placed in us, this wondrous good news of transformation that is ongoing. Peter wants us to know that truth and flourish in it. Now, the second letter begins with a reintroduction. It's, it's the author reintroducing himself it's been a number of years since he wrote the first epistle that we have already gone through. And now he's reintroducing himself with two names, two titles, and one God. 
Two names, two titles, and one God. And if you'll just slow down with me a little bit and think about why did he write two names, two titles, and a God? What's the meaning of that? Well, first of all, he gives two names, Simeon Peter. Now, you and I probably pronounce that Simon more than anything. Simeon is actually spelled sometimes with an E and sometimes without the E. And it's not that somebody's misspelled the name. It just depends if they're writing in the Hebrew or they're writing in the Greek. Because Simeon is the Hebrew expression of the given name. And where you see it written as Simon, that's the Greek transliteration of that Hebrew name. So he's saying in the second epistle, his name is Simeon Peter. You know Peter is the Greek name given to Simeon, or Simon if you're reading it in Greek, given to him by Jesus Christ. And that came after a, a declaration of his faith to Jesus, his declaration that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, Jesus paused in that moment. He said, hey, I'm not going to call you Simeon anymore. I'm going to call you Peter, Petros. It's it's your faith, it's the communication of that faith, it's the truth that God has revealed to you that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on that rock, I'm gonna build my church on that truth and on that kind of faith. It's found for us over in Matthew chapter 16. It'll be on the screen or in your handouts. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. I'm going to change your name. Anybody in junior high or high school, your friends kind of changed your name and gave you a nickname? Don't tell me some of those nicknames. It, it came at an awkward time in your life when you were not given to the things of Christ. But some of you, you had a nickname, and there was meaning behind that. Uh, we, we had friends, and their nickname was given to something that they were given to. I remember one of my friends, we nicknamed Ramper. And that sounds kind of stupid, but when you're 13, it sounded kind of cool. And it's because he could build ramps and jump his bike off those ramps like nobody's business. So we called him Ramper the rest of the time. Here Jesus is saying, hey, Simeon, I'm calling you Peter from now on. Man, that statement you just gave, that's a rock. You didn't come up with that on your own. That's, that's from my Father who is in heaven. And that truth is what you'll stand on. That truth is what the church will stand on. That truth is transformational. Could I just say to any of you in this house or those who are listening some way on radio or through a streaming service, can I just say that that's transformational for your life as well? That when you come to understand who Jesus is, he is divine, he is God, he's the, the flesh of God, the son of God, and he is Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament, the prophets have been pointing to for all those hundreds and hundreds of years. When you come to understand that he is God in the flesh and that your life ought to be surrendered to him, then that is transformational. That kind of faith is what saves us. 
That's God's grace to even give us the understanding of that and the faith to to stand in that kind of truth. So he's saying, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Now, since Peter did not include both names in the first epistle, but he did include both names in the second, we ought to just say, huh, I wonder why. What might be the probable reasons? He didn't tell us the reason, so we're just kind of having to infer that there's probably some reason to this. And what might be the reason that he would include both names, Simeon and Peter, in the beginning of his letter? And I think what potentially he's doing here is saying, I'm recognizing that I had life before Christ and I had life with and after Christ. I'm recognizing that my life is whole And as I'm writing this last letter at the end of my my days, I want to remind you that I am Simeon by birth, but I am Peter by declaration of Jesus. Because of the faith and the insight to truth that God had given to him. He wants us to recognize that. Now, mentioning both his birth name and the name Jesus gives to him helps us to recognize that, yes, Peter was one who was born of the flesh, born of woman, but he was also one who is born again, born of Jesus Christ, born of the Spirit. In fact, all of us are going to have life fit into one of those two categories, You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You're either not saved or you are saved. You are either living life before faith in Christ or you're living life in faith in Christ. And so you and I have two names, those of us who are in Christ. We have the name that was given to us at birth and we have a name that God has given to us in the adoption of his family. So understanding that and communicating that true essence of our identity helps us to be readied for all the spiritual growth that God wants to apply in our lives. You've got to come to an understanding of who you are and the identity that you have. Peter had come to that place. I am Simeon, but I am Peter, Petros. I I want to frame it up. I'll just use me as an example, but it could be any of us who are in faith. I could use your names, but I am Randall Hayden Gunter, born a son by Jean and Sandy Gunter, cherished most of the time by them, but fully rebellious of a holy God who orchestrated all my life before the world was put into order. That's who I am. I am Randy Gunner, adopted into the family of God by his love, when by grace Jesus forgave me of my sin and credited to me and my account his righteousness. I am the Gunter son, but eternally I am a son of God. What an identity. What an identity. And the world is so crazy because they fail to recognize the true identity that God has given to them. I mean, this is getting so absurd that people don't even recognize they're born male or female. And Jesus told us right up front in his scripture, in the first chapter, we're born male or female in his image. 
And our identity is that we are rebellious to a holy God. That's our identity, and I am forever separated with God until I come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ who is moving towards me in love and grace, calling out and initiating a relationship to me, pouring out faith so that I might trust in him as Savior, and then adopting me gloriously into the faith family. That's my identity. So I say all that wrapped up. I'm a son born of parents, rebellious to God, but God came and drew me to himself that I might be adopted into his family, took away the sin in my life, imputed his righteousness into my life, justifying me before a holy God, and now I have a wondrous eternal relationship with him. It's a wondrous identity. Do you have the fullness of that identity? Because some of you are going to be able to point to you are a biological son or daughter. Some of you are going to be able to say, this is who I am, born of this couple. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can communicate being born from above, spiritually born again. And Peter is introducing us to himself in this first letter, I think, to help us to recognize you must have both. If you're alive, you have to be alive by heaven. You have to be made spiritually alive. Jesus' words, I mean, they're pretty simple. You must be born again. That's what he said. You must be born again. So Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 help us to understand how this happens, how we might be born again. Uh, you discover the truth about who Jesus Christ is. You discover the truth about who you are in your sin. And you plead the mercy of God. And the scripture says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved for... With the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is made whole or is saved. So mentioning Peter's, Simeon Peter's two names reminds us of this dramatic moment of his journey in faith when he was, when he was born again, and this proclamation of faith was given. Now, there's a highlight of faith mentioned that I've already told you about a few minutes ago where he acknowledges who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah. But I want you to think about mentioning both names, Simeon Peter. I want you to think as well about Peter's faulty faith, that moment of faulty faith when he betrayed Jesus three times on the night of his arrest. Jesus had warned Peter earlier in that day that that was going to transpire, that he would fall away along with all the other disciples, that they would all leave him and forsake him. And if you remember, Peter was saying, Lord, uh, these other guys, they may leave you. They may forsake you, but I won't ever do that. And uh, remember what Jesus said? Peter, if it weren't for me praying for you, Satan would sift you like wheat because he's already asked to do that. I say that because I want you to recognize grace is what keeps us from doing that. It's not that you would be like Peter and say, I would never do that. 
I'm going to always be faithful to you. I've never walk away. No, no, no. Let me tell you what. If it wasn't for Jesus at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf with such grace, we would do the same thing. So aren't we grateful that God saves us with grace? And aren't we grateful that in grace, God keeps on saving us? He keeps us drawn near to himself. That's, that's what Peter is recognizing. And I think what he's saying in this moment of I am Simeon and I am Peter, this very understanding that I'm a man who struggles in the things of Christ and who sometimes is strong in the things of Christ, but I'm a man of grace. Was there ever a time after Jesus reconciled Peter, was there ever a time that he new grace more I don't know and this is the highlight they're sitting on the shore of the sea of Galilee it's breakfast and Jesus had prepared the way for them to have breakfast and he's got the fire going and he's cooking up some stuff for them they're coming in from an all-night fishing uh, escapade that they didn't catch anything until Jesus graciously provided for a catch and now now they're on the shore and they're eating and remember and Peter and Jesus get into this dialogue and Jesus is saying Peter do, do you love me do you love me do you love me actually what Jesus says is Simon son of John do you love me he went back, didn't he? He didn't call him Peter in that moment. He went back to what it was like before the declaration of faith. And perhaps in that moment, Jesus was saying, you trailed back. You went back to one who, who didn't have faith, who did not know me. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? I don't know if he's talking about the fish or he's talking about the disciples around. I think he's probably talking about the fish. Do you love me more than these? Oh, Lord, you know I do. Then you make sure you tend to my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Three times that happened. You know what I think he was doing? He's saying, Simon, son of John, I need to know, do you love me more than that? You need to know you love me. Maybe some of you are there today. You trailed off. You trailed back. You, you've gone back to the old ways before your life was given in faith to Christ. And somehow you've gone back to an old way of thinking, an old pattern. That's what Peter did. He went back to the old pattern. I'm going to be a fisherman again. I'm going to get back on that sea and I'm going to, I'm going to bring in the harvest and I'm going to make my money in that way. And you trail back, and maybe today is the day that just hearing two names, Simeon Peter, is a reminder you had a past before Christ, you have a present in Christ, you need to come back to the present. How do I do that? Grace, grace. You didn't save yourself, and you're not going to keep yourself saved. Grace, wondrous grace, sustaining grace. Well, I'm just going to be reminding you today in this moment that people who falter in their faith can still finish well. Peter faltered in his faith, but boy, did he ever finish well. 
I mean, if you think about the rest of his days, filled with the Spirit of God, making declaration on that day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people get saved. And he just continues to preach and share. Now he has some stumbles along the way, gets some things wrong along the way, but don't we all? But he's a man who's rock solid in his faith, given to the things of Jesus Christ. And he, he is going to endure what you and I might struggle to endure. He is going to finish well. Some of you have faltered, and I want you to know that it doesn't have to stay that way. By God's grace, you too can finish well. And it's a grand time to just say, oh, Lord, by your grace, help me to finish well. Let there be a difference in me beginning today. So he mentions these two names, and he mentions two titles. He's a servant and an apostle. Now, we're called to serve. All of us are servants of Jesus Christ, and we serve in gratitude to our salvation. Kay and I were praying together this week, and that, that sort of was prompted by the Spirit in us to pray. And so we just were thinking about the wondrous things that Christ has done to bring us into salvation and all that he has accomplished and treasured into us as a great gift. And in our prayer time together, we just said, Lord, today, just what we understood from today's reading we pledge to you to be a servant. Oh God, it's in our heart to serve you out of great love and affection for what you have done, providing such life, privilege to us. We want to serve you the rest of our days. So we submit ourselves to him and submitting ourselves to, means, uh, to him means that we're submitting our will and our way to him. And under his love and care and affection that he has given to us as he's laid down his life for us, we lay our life unto him and say, we want to live as a living sacrifice to you. Peter saw himself in that same capacity. He saw himself as a servant of God. And so he just acknowledges that. And he's also acknowledging that he has a unique position as an apostle an apostle isn't a title given out today uh, I'm not an apostle of Jesus Christ not as Peter is an apostle was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord he was one who was commissioned by Christ himself to speak and minister in his name what what a unique position so here's the the least servant that's who he is and the greatest an apostle, one who, who saw the resurrected Lord and was personally commissioned by Jesus Christ to, to account on his behalf, to be witnesses on his behalf. And so Peter grew in this great call of being a servant and an apostle, and he led the church well, proclaiming the gospel boldly until he died. Now, I say all of that to get me to this conclusion statement, and that's this. We're postured for spiritual growth when we understand and acknowledge who we were and are in Christ. So you're posturing well based on what you understand about Jesus Christ. And if you'll understand the fullness of Christ, you're postured for great growth. It's not about you. It's not about your strength. It's about God's grace and his insight that he's given to you by the scriptures and by the teacher, the Holy Spirit. So how are you doing? Do you have faith? Do you have an encouragement? Do you have a sense that God wants to do something in you powerfully and he will as you know and acknowledge 
who you are in Christ and what he's doing in your life. And then verse one, Peter continues in that verse to give us an astounding gospel truth. There's a, there's a hallelujah or an amen or that's good stuff comment coming. So you ready? Kind of priming the pump here, aren't I? Every saved individual has obtained a faith of equal standing with that of the apostles. Wow, I hear you, Brandon. That's a wow statement. Because the apostles had amazing faith. But here, Peter is saying to us, everybody who has faith in Christ Jesus has the same standing in faith as they do. I want you to recognize the gospel faith has no system of hierarchy. It's all on an equal plane. The ground is level for those who are seeking and receiving the mercy of Jesus Christ unto salvation. And that statement is true because every person that God saves is 100% dependent upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That means we all just have to say, oh God, I'm trusting you fully by faith. I'm 100% dependent upon Jesus Christ that he would give me all that's required for me to be justified. None of you are 99.9%. None of you are 95%. None of you are 80%. None of you are 50. None of you are 10. You're all 100% needy of the righteousness of Christ and so was I. Now, so when we put our faith in him, that means we're 100% all on the same plane. 100% needy of dependence on Christ Jesus. So listen what that says to us. There's no partiality or preference in faith. Whether it's the apostle Peter or the apostle Paul or any of us, Patrick or Preston or Patsy or Penny or Pam or Phyllis or Phil or Pris or anybody else with the letter P, we all stand equally in faith in the blood of Christ Jesus, secure, eternally secure in the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us of all unrighteousness and imputes righteousness into us that we might stand before God boldly. There is no person here today whose soul hasn't been marked through and through, stained to the core with sin. We were born in sin and we've continued in that rebellious muck every day of our lives. We have an immeasurable failure and fault rate, an incalculable amount of regret and remorse. And when we walk, we wanna walk in righteousness, we find that we are failing and falling short every single time. The only way we'll be able to stand before God on the day of judgment is that we have been cleansed by Jesus Christ and have been given the treasure of his righteousness. Therefore, everyone is entirely dependent upon Jesus. Now, that being the case, let me note this. Every Christian has equal access to God's sustaining grace. We all have equal access to God's grace unto salvation. We all have equal access to his sustaining grace. So if you have slipped, fallen, or even languished in your sin, God's sustaining grace calls you today to reclaim you and to reset you spiritually. I don't know all the circumstances or the conditions of your life, but when I wrote that line in my notes... Some of you came to mind. I wanted you to be reminded today 
that it's in God's sustaining grace that he reclaims you. You've wondered how you're going to get out of all this. How will you ever change? The habits are so set. God resets. When you come to a point in your life, I've been here, where you love Jesus more than you love the sin, that's a sustaining move of grace on God's part in your life. And you ought to press toward that. You ought to press right there. And when the temptation comes your way, and when you want to walk in the old way, you just remember that Christ has made you to walk new. He's giving you a moment of escape, and his sustaining grace will fortify you if you'll just press right there. That's hard, and it's difficult. The flesh is strong, but the spirit is stronger. Press towards him. Every Christian has the means and opportunity for that. That brings me to this sort of concluding statement here. We're postured for spiritual growth when we continually trust Jesus as Savior and God who transforms us in grace. I'm just trusting him to continuously transform me. Today, I want to be continuously transformed. I'm grateful I've come to the place that I've come, but I'm not done yet. I don't look like Jesus, I don't sound like Jesus, I don't think like Jesus, I don't do the things of Jesus to the level that brings him glory. So I'm praying that he'll continue to transform me today. How will he do that? Sustaining grace. He'll just keep providing. And then verse 2 of the letter highlights two wonderful gifts of God given to us through Jesus Christ, and they are grace and peace. Here's what it says. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I've already mentioned the big concept of grace, God's saving grace. It means that our salvation is through Jesus Christ. You and I know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God the means or the measure to boast. It's all by God's grace that we're saved. So I've mentioned that big concept, but Peter is fixated not only on that reality, but he's fixated in this letter on the treasure of God's sustaining grace, that there's a, a growth that takes place. In fact, if I go back to the first epistle, to the last chapter of that first epistle that Peter wrote, it says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, read this aloud with me, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Anybody needing any of those four? It'll be God's grace that's providing that. Stop thinking that you gotta get your life in order. You gotta get the strength to do this. You've gotta be more determined. It will be God's grace. Surrender to him. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Press toward him, and it will be God's grace that will restore you and strengthen and confirm and establish you. So you see, we depend on God's grace for salvation, and we are depending on God's grace for sustaining us on this journey in this world until we get to heaven Every step is a dependence upon Jesus Christ. Julia Herrett Johnston was born in 1849. Some of you remember that year. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> 
That's what you get when you work with a bunch of 55 plusers all the time. <laughs> she started writing songs in her childhood. There might be some kids that do that very thing. Hey, parents, grandparents, encourage that. She got serious about writing songs when she was a high schooler. Hey, some of you high schoolers, you've got a knack for that. You've got a real flair for that. D don't let your friends talk you out of doing that. What an impact poetry and songs make when they're embedded in truth. Uh, let me flip that around. What an impact poems, songs, stories make when they are expressed from truth. Now you take art and pull it outside of biblical truth and it can get really gnarly. You can get ugly. But you take things that are seen in a creative way from truth and it can be absolutely glorious and encouraging. So Julia was that kind of child. And as she grew into her teens, she was really flourishing. In fact, she's credited with writing 500 hymns published what an amazing thing that that so much of that work is known to us now probably the most the most known to us includes this verse marvelous grace of our loving lord grace that exceeds exceeds our sin and our guilt yonder on calvary's mount outpoured there where the blood of the lamb was spilt grace grace God's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse within don't try to do it on the outside grace grace God's grace grace that is greater than all our sin she was the daughter of a preacher no doubt heard him preach grace no doubt read of grace in the scripture no doubt experienced grace herself and out of that came this wondrous flourish of truth in her you see my friends the point is that Jesus in offering us that kind of grace brings peace to us peace with God peace with God through the grace that is extended to us it's overwhelming to think that you and I were rebellious and sinful against God but yet God came to reconcile us we wrong him and he reconciles us we were enemies of his but he came to us as a friend to draw us to himself God sent the prince of peace to this contentious world in which you and I find ourselves in conflict with him and he came to make peace with us how by grace what a gift that God has given us through Christ of grace and peace through the knowledge Peter says of Jesus Christ who is God and Savior that's how we received this. Now I want you to see how important this is. I'm just giving you an introduction to this book. It's so important that he begins the book and he ends the book the same way. This is the bookends of the epistle. Chapter, two, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And listen how he's going to end it grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior 
Jesus Christ. So Peter's ringing the bell, isn't he? He's saying, I want you to know this. I want you to know the truth of who Jesus Christ is and all that he's affording to you. Because once I discovered the truth that Jesus Christ was affording me, it transformed me. Come to know Jesus. Know him as Savior. Know him as God. And when you do, you'll know him in the grace and the peace that he affords you. Some of you unto salvation, some of you in salvation and sustaining work of salvation. Grow. Grow in that truth. What a call for us. Lord, help us. In this moment, uh, as you have spoken to us and there's a, a flicker of hope now that we've come to discover in the knowledge of Christ more about his grace. For some, there's a, there's a light that is burning in us and you're fanning that today that it might flourish into a flame of wondrous catharsis in our life of removal of sin and cleansing us from unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus and flushing us with the wonderful good news that we can have that righteousness in us. Cleanse us from the unrighteousness and give us the righteousness, I pray. And for those of us who are saved by faith, oh, I pray, Lord, that you'd find us growing day by day in the knowledge of of Jesus our Lord let it be evident in the things we think the words we say the things we do and the reason behind it that we might grow to the glory and honor of Christ I pray in his name amen